Every Sunday is Resurrection Day. You know that, right? Yeah, it's awesome. It's a lot of reason to celebrate on Sundays. Anybody wishing you had that hour of sleep back? How often do you hear somebody say, like, I just had way too much sleep lately? <laughs> That's something I don't hear a whole lot of, I'll be honest. I, it's rare that somebody comes into the office and says, I need counseling. I, I sleep too much. I'm sure there's some of us who may sleep too much, but we don't seem to mind anyway. <laughs> it's, yeah. Uh, there's a few young moms in here with little ones. Abigail, you sleep too much, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All you young moms, I'm sure you get way too much sleep right now. You know, uh, today we're talking about, we're in the uh, Lent series on uh, Jesus Makes a Way, Making a Way, and today we're talking about making a way to rest. And when it comes to rest, rest is a whole lot more than just sleep, although that is a good picture of rest for sure. But it's more than that, and restlessness is more than just sleeplessness. Although sleeplessness is a good picture of restlessness too, isn't it? I mean, if you don't have sleep, it affects everything else, doesn't it? When you're I mean, like all our, I, all our young moms or our insomniacs or our workaholics or our caffeine junkies, all of, all of us, we can all say that uh, when we don't get our sleep, it really changes a lot of other things for us. It changes our health patterns. It changes our relationships and the way we interact with people. It usually doesn't take quite as much to set us off if we haven't had much rest. That's why, uh, you know, uh, sleeplessness is a form of torture. I mean, that's actually a, a legitimate form of torture of, of keeping people up. And uh, that can be really rough. But uh, restlessness can be about a whole lot more than just a lack of sleep. And there can really be internal restlessness. Sometimes, actually, the reason that we don't get sleep is because we're restless, right? And we can't, our bodies can't sleep because the internal parts of us are not at rest. And it's amazing how our bodies and our, and our spirits, uh, you know, have some connection there. And there are times in our lives where actually on the exterior, the circumstances of our life could be not all that bad, but internally, still just a restlessness. You know what I'm saying? You've been there. I've been there for sure, where uh, it could be that life's fine. The relationships are, are decent, you know, work's fine, and uh, life circumstances aren't all that brutal right now, and yet something in me is just not, not at rest. The opposite can really be true, too. I mean, we, you know, the Apostle Paul, he talks about uh, moments when God actually uses restlessness as a way of communicating um, so he said, well, when I was there among you, my soul could not find rest. And that's where, that's Paul kind of communicating. There's something that wasn't sitting right because we weren't okay. And you know how when you're in tension with someone who you're close to, it's very difficult to have internal rest. If, if you have a big blow up with a relationship with someone that you care about, no matter how hard you try to be like focused and think about the positive, there's still just that internal tension. And Paul talks about that in the spiritual realm. He talks about how I went to this place and I, I went here and I tried to settle in here, but there was something I, my soul could not find rest. You know, and, and we experience that. But, but there, the flip side is also true, and that's that there are also moments where despite all the craziness of the circumstances around us, God can give us internal peace and rest. Maybe you've had that too. And maybe you've had the moment when you have brothers and sisters going to bat for you in prayer and you're going through all sorts of difficult things. I know this week there was a bunch of us who were praying for that couple sitting in the back there. You know, uh, uh, Jeff and uh, Amy um, got in a car accident and, um, 
And, you know, when you see little Luke with all the cuts all over his face, is back there in the bandage on him. You know, when one of our brothers or sisters goes through something, we go to bat in prayer. And, and there's a number of prayer requests that fly across the pages of our, of our email because we send out the prayer chain. And when we do, we all jump in and we begin to pray for each other. And sometimes people will come back and say, I'm like really, really feeling the prayers of people right now because I should be flipping out. And yet I just... I'm okay. Like, I'm seriously okay, you know? And that's because there's some sort of peace being given internally. And lots of that is because our brothers and sisters are helping carry the burden, which is awesome. We're called to do that. One of my favorite pictures in Scripture of someone being at a place of rest in the midst of really difficult circumstances is the picture of Stephen. You know, Stephen, he was the first Christian martyr. And I love, one of the things I love about Stephen is he was a deacon, and um, deacons uh, at that point, wh- what they did was they would uh, take care of logistics. They would, you know, set up the tables, tear down the tables, do all of that so that the elders could spend their time praying and studying the word uh, to deliver for the rest. But Stephen was no joke when it came to the word of God because he got put in this situation where the religious leaders were coming on him and he had apparently been sharing the gospel all over the place. And they, they get him in front of them and they're kind of grilling him. And this guy preaches just a spectacular message. You know, and that's not his job. That's not what he does. And he preaches this message. Well, in the middle of it, they get mad at him and they start picking up stones to stone him. And uh, so he's breathing his last breath here and he's about to die and he knows it. And he looks up into heaven and I, I get chills every time I think of this. He looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the father. And the picture of standing is a picture of honor. And it's a picture of welcome. He stands up and he opens up his arms like this. And, and here is this picture of this man who's at death's door, who everyone around him hates him. All the circumstances are terrible. And his soul is going to rest. And you can hear the smile in his words when he says, like, behold, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And everyone's so angry. And no one else in the place has rest except the guy who's getting killed who's internally at a place of rest. This is a picture of biblical rest, what it means to have true, deep, abiding rest. Our text today, um, it kind of describes a a different kind of life, a life of rest that is maybe different than when we lay our head on our pillow, maybe just different than on the seventh day, the Sabbath that God called us to, a whole together, altogether different kind of rest where it's, it's a life that's lived out of abundance, not out of a deficit. So it's not, I'm exhausted and exhausted and exhausted, and then I finally get to a place of rest, but that instead, it's a general posture of I live in a place of rest with God. And it's like Psalm 23, where it says, my cup overfloweth. My cu- that was the King James, by the way, overfloweth. My cup overflows. That there's an abundance of, of peace, of the presence of God in me, and it spills over into my life. How many of us feel like we've had too much sleep? You know, how many of us feel like our spirits internally have so much rest that is just bubbling over and affecting all the people around us? How many of us believe that our lives look like it's a wellspring of peace, that there's so much peace and internal rest that when the turmoil comes, when the tension comes, instead of that having effects on me, what happens is all of the, all the tension, 
when it hits me and my sphere, it just kind of disappears because it gets absorbed into the overflowing peace that God is bringing from my life. That is what's available to a Christian. That's not a pipe dream. That's not a false reality. That's very much available. And that's exactly what Stephen portrayed in that moment. And it's what many Christians throughout history have really portrayed. And it's something that's available to us. And our text speaks about it today. It talks about how to live out of the abundance, out of the posture of rest. And what I mean by living out of, out of a posture of rest is it means that, you know, there's that difference between a gesture and a posture. And we've talked about this before, but a posture is kind of the way you carry yourself, the, the very place in, in, in w- the, the demeanor in which you carry yourself. And there's an ability for rest to be our posture posture instead of just the gesture. A gesture is when, so here I am in a posture, and then I do this, and that's a gesture. Gesture are the things when something comes into our life, when, a, when, when life throws you a curveball, a gesture would be to react and catch it. But the posture would be where I reside. And this text calls us to a place of residing in rest. Gesturing to move to whatever it is that God calls us to, to flow with God, but a posture of rest. If you've looked at the, the, uh, the painting, um, if you, you know, of course you've seen the picture of the painting of the, uh, of the Sistine Chapel, the creation of Adam or the touch of God, whatever you call it. And there's that, the, 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 sometimes you just see the hands. Um, you don't see the whole picture, but the two hands about to touch. And uh, you see uh, Adam's hand is, is really relaxed. He's kind of like this. You know, very relaxed. And then God's hand, a little less relaxed, but not much less relaxed. As a matter of fact, almost his whole hand is relaxed, but his fingers kind of reaching out to touch. And so he's in a posture of relaxation, of rest, but his finger is gesturing to reach out and touch. And Adam's kind of like in a restful place here. And that picture is a picture I think in many ways of what this text calls us to is a place of rest in our lives with God. And so we're going to uh, talk, walk through that text in just a few minutes. Um, a few other things I want to mention about rest before we touch the text. Um, so uh, join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for what you make available to us uh, through the gospel. We're interested in uh, having the full and abundant life that you say, Jesus, you came that we may have life and that we may have it to the full, that we may have it in abundance, that it may be overflowing. And for many of us, um, I believe that it's easy to get stuck in a pattern where we feel a deficiency of life, where we feel there's a whole lot more going out of our lives than there is coming in. And uh, we are uh, working on fumes. We're running on fumes. And uh, we're, not, we're not running on, on the, the abundance of the movement of your spirit and your word through us, God. And we would ask today that our hope and our prayer today is that as we read the truths that you lay out in Hebrews 3 and 4 here, that, um, God, they wouldn't just be words that we understand and dialogue about, but that there would be something that truly about these words that, as Hebrews 4 says, these are alive words. These are active words. These are powerful words. And we ask that, God, they would speak to us today, and they would, they would be the words of life for us, and that they would bring us to more more full life. God, any sense of hopelessness that we feel when we hear words but don't think that we can apply them, God, I ask that today you would dispel that myth in our minds and instead you give us the faith to believe that there is a life that's, that, that's a deep, rich, abundant life and it's available for us today. And I ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
if you think about a life of rest, living from a place of rest, you, I, I was asking Jen about this earlier today, like, what do you, th- or earlier this week, like, what do you think of when you think about a person who lives at rest? Like, what other characteristics? And we were talking about that, and I was thinking this through. A couple words might come to mind about a person who's at rest. Um, some words that are tossed around a lot these days are people who know how to balance their life. You know what I mean? Someone who has the ability to kind of take all the complexities of life and somehow find some place of balance, you know? And that sounds nice, and that sounds like, uh, yeah, I wish that I knew how to balance it all. But then when you think about a picture of someone who's balancing it all, picture someone who's spinning all the plates and trying to keep them all balanced, you know? That doesn't seem restful to me. And uh, balance is actually not a biblical concept at all. The word balance isn't used in the scripture except to talk about balancing scales of injustice, which means that if I treat people inappropriately, I need to balance the scale and understand that we all are God's people and we need to deal in a balanced way with other people. That's very different terminology than we use with this word uh, balance. Balance is not uh, a a Christian concept. It's not a biblical concept. Balance is uh, from Eastern philosophy, and that's the idea that uh, basically we can take all the good, all the bad, all the ups, all the downs, and we can find our kind of zen in the middle there, you know? That's, that's, and it's, we discipline ourselves to be really, really in the middle, central, and that's, and that's not actually scriptural, that whole, that whole concept. And it's a little bit, I believe, of a uh, false hope to think that I can actually balance my life because I'm not sure that at this stage in the game we have the resources necessary in order to bring balance to the complexities of our world. And I think that many of us wish and hope for the day when we can be more balanced and yet I'm not sure that the scriptures teach us that we can actually accomplish that. Another word we might think of is the word simplicity. Um, and so instead of trying to figure out how to take all the complexities of our world and manage them appropriately in my life and therefore be at rest, the other is cut back the complexities so that life is more simple. And then you just focus on the simple things. Well, simple, the, the word simple and, and variations of it, again, are not used all that often in the scriptures, but where they are, almost every time they're used to talk about those of us who are simple-minded which means we're foolish. Um, And it's used in the Proverbs and the Psalms a lot, and it's talking about uh, basically we live in a place of denial where we pretend that life is not complicated. We act like it's simple when life actually is complicated. So instead of having the wisdom to deal with what it is that God's given to me, wisdom would be closer to that idea of balance. Instead, I'm just saying, nope, I'm simple-minded. I'm keeping it like this and not dealing with any of that. But all that other stuff still deals with me, even though I don't deal with it. And that's called foolishness. And uh, there is one time in the scriptures where the word simplicity is used in the way that we tend to think of simplicity, like keeping it simple. And here it is. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 3. And this is Paul talking to the church in Corinth. And this is what he says. He says, I want you to listen real carefully to this. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's in the New American Standard Version. 
if uh, the funny thing is, I, I, I'm saying that's the only time in the uh, in the New Testament that word simplicity is used the way we use it, and it's only in one translation it's translated that way. Although it's probably the best word for word translation uh, that we have is the New American Standard. Um, so in your ESV or NIV or whatever, it probably says the word sincerity um, instead of simplicity. Uh, but what this is saying is, is Paul's saying to the church in Corinth, he says, this is what I'm afraid of for you guys. I'm afraid that in the way that, you remember when, when the serpent came to Eve and said to Eve, yeah, you know, there's all this stuff and, and you got all that, but what about this one thing? You really like this one thing? And she's like, we can't, sorry, we can't do that. Um, and he says, really? Are you sure you'll surely die? Is it, maybe it's a little more complicated than that. Maybe, God, maybe we could nuance what it is that God said here. You know, uh, let, let's look at it from a different angle. And when that happens, she kind of peers around the corner and says, huh, I wonder if I can. And in the deceitfulness of sin, in the deceitfulness of sin, what ends up happening is that they are led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to God. What do those words mean? Simplicity means that it's not very complex. Pure means it's all one thing. Devotion, maybe you remember what that word uh, is about. We've talked about that word a number of times. The word devotion means wholeheartedly given to a singular course of action. Wholeheartedly, entirely given to a singular course of action. What we said before is you can have a desire or an interest in something. You can even be committed to something, but that doesn't make you devoted to it. Being devoted to something means that's who you are. That's what you are. It's what you're all about. And so devotion, the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ means that I have one job in my life. One job as a Christian. I do not have many jobs. I do not have many complex things to balance. I do not have all sorts of things that I have to figure out how to bring in connection with each other. I am a one-trick pony, baby. I got this right here. I have Jesus and only Jesus. And my one job in life is to get myself completely, entirely, wholeheartedly devoted, submitted to Jesus. That's all there is. And what he's saying is, I'm just worried for you guys because I'm afraid that there's these little ways that the deceitfulness of sin will start to draw you away from the very simple, pure devotion to Jesus. And I think that's a really, 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 really big concern for us because what ends up happening is as soon as we get away from that, things start to go haywire and they really do start to get a lot more complicated than they need to be. See, rest isn't found through great self-discipline. It's not the person who has the strength to manage their stuff. It's not the person who's real good at time management, the person who knows how to balance the budget, the person who knows how to keep this relationship warm while they're dealing with this relationship over here and knows how to deal with the paperwork where you're also giving life to this over here. It's not all that. That's not what keeps us in a place of rest because we figured out how to get it all working. As a matter of fact, that does exactly the opposite of rest. What that means is, is that I have to keep all those plates spinning, and if it's my responsibility to make sure that everything is going the way it needs to, all that's going to do is add stress to my life. 
And it's going to make me feel more and more like, okay, I got this one, I got this one. Oh, there's another ball coming. I'm going to, I'm going to try to juggle this. Oh, there's another one. I'm going to kick it while juggling, you know. And, and it gets to the place where it's like, I might be doing a good job as far as everyone else can see because I got so much going on and somehow seem to be doing it. And yet at the core of that, I'm getting exhausted and I'm not taking time and life is just crazy. And eventually where it started off as fun doing this, all of a sudden, it gets to the place where if someone does anything that messes up my world, I start to get really upset with them because they're rocking my system. And I need my system in order to work this thing, you know? And if you break into that, we're going to have a problem, you and I. And oftentimes, what we see is that how we react in very difficult situations says a lot about what's going on internally and who we're trusting. If I'm living from a place of rest, then I have the capacity when crazy things happen in my life to stay relatively at a place of rest. But when I am trying to juggle everything, it very easily I can get out of whack. And uh, that's because I'm living in that place where circumstances are far beyond what I can control. And yet I'm trying to pretend like I actually can control, you know? Somewhere along the line, the deceitfulness of sin told me that I could actually handle this. And when Eve got led astray, see, this is what happened for them. It was really difficult, is that they thought for a second, well, that'd be cool. We could gain wisdom like God. We could see the world like him. And we could be a little bit in control. So she takes the fruit, and, and they engage in this activity. And when they do, what happens? Everything was fine and dandy before that because God provided for all their needs, and they had it. But as soon as they stepped out from under the covering of God, they had to be God. They were playing by their own rules. And now, remember what happened? Adam was cultivating the garden. That was his job with God. He was working on the garden. They were planting stuff. The fruit was bearing. It was all great and everything. But then the curse, as soon as it happened, as soon as they separated themselves from God, all of a sudden this work, which was like hanging out with the garden, hanging out with God in the garden, having our little project and enjoying each other, instead it became the thing that I had to do in order to provide for my family. And there's all this stress and, and the thorns and all of this. And instead of it being a fun, creative project... With my father, instead it becomes this thing that I have to accomplish in order to make ends meet in my life. And this is very often what happens to us. We might get into something thinking that we're getting into it and, and thinking like, this is going to be great. I can, I can teach my kids to do this. Or we can, I, I can go out here and engage in this sort of vocation because uh, you know I'm in, I'm in some sort of uh, social service where I really like to care for people. I, I don't care what the thing is that you get into that looks like fun. As soon as you start to see it only as work, then it can pretty easily become laborsome. Right? I, I mean, I know, I, I remember hearing, um, I forget who it was, but I remember hearing about some professional athlete who was talking about how difficult it was to be a professional athlete. You know, and these guys playing a game for a living, but I would imagine that's tough too. I mean, you got to work out all the time. You're dealing with all these, like, I'm sure physically it's actually got to be hard work. Thing is, you're playing a game, and a game's a whole lot of fun. But once you have to do it, it's like anything else, right? It's why people are scared of marriage. It's a great relationship till I had to be in it.
I've never thought that once in my life, so I'm not worried. You guys are all worried. I'm not. I was speaking for her, not for me. (laughs) What ends up happening in anything in our life when it becomes a demand, it becomes very difficult. And what happens is when we step out of the covering that God has provided for us, then it's really easy for everything else to feel like a demand. Do you know what I mean? So here's how it was supposed to work. It's supposed to work that we, there was this amazing universe that was created. And on the last day, we were set in this one little planet over here. And for some crazy reason, I don't know, God gave us what seems to me to be an absolutely irrational amount of power. And the power that he gave us is this thing called free will, where we can choose to actually submit to the creator and the designer and flow with the design, or we can choose to go our way over here. And when we do, guess what happens? The whole design, it doesn't flow the way it was supposed to. Things start messing up. Natural resources that were available were plenty in abundance. We have less of because we're compensating for this by doing this. And when I didn't want to work, I didn't work. And when I shouldn't have been working anymore, I decided to work because I'm the God of my own universe trying to make everything work. But the problem is, is that I, (laughs) wow, that was a good one. (laughs) But I and the world around me, we were designed to fit together. I wasn't called to be one with the universe or something like pantheism, but I was called to be one with the creator of the universe and move the way he tells me to move. And when he does, I am like a child who submits to my parents, even when I don't understand, and that might be hard, and yet there's safety and security that can allow me to lay my head on the pillow and go to sleep at night. Even if dad comes home and says, I lost my job tonight, chances are the kids are still playing the game that night and they're still falling asleep. It's mom and dad who have to carry the burden. And God told us that he will carry the burden of our lives. But rarely do we let him, and the reason is because we don't want him to, because we don't want him to be in charge of our lives. Because we don't also want to submit when he says no. Or when he says go. And when we don't want to submit to that, then it puts us in the place where we have to manage our lives. And then it puts us in a place where rest isn't actually available very easily to us. There was this crazy moment in uh, Mark, or in Matthew, I think it's around chapter 8, where there was these two demons who were living in, there was these demons who were living in these guys, and you remember when Jesus cast out the demons, and he sent them into the pigs, and the pigs go running off the cliff, remember that? And then do you remember what the, how the town responded? They were afraid, big time, and then what did they ask? They asked Jesus to leave. They asked God of the universe, who was cleansing their land from the problems they could never fix on their own, they're like, get lost. You are crazy and you are causing problems. These pigs are our resources. How do you think we feed our kids? How do you think we care for our life? You just took all the control that we have and you threw it off the cliff. And he was basically, in essence, in my mind, what Jesus is saying, even though he's not really saying much of anything, but what he, his response is a shrug that's like, 
The reason you have the demons is because of the control issue. We threw the control away. You're mad at me because I threw the control away. You're telling me to get out of your town because you want to regain control. But that means you're going to regain demons. When the difficulties come into my life, if I want to keep all the difficulties at bay, when I don't like what God's telling me to do here, when I don't want to submit to what God's telling me to do here, so I want to make up my own rules for my life, and I'm holding him at bay, what I'm doing is making it so my life cannot rest. Because I'm deciding to be God of the universe, which means I have to carry the weight of that on my shoulders. Which means I'm a little child who has to worry about my parents' job. It doesn't work that way. I'm not qualified. And I'm not qualified to be God of the universe, and I shouldn't be qualified to carry a heavy yoke and a heavy burden. I sh- I'm not qualified for that. But I'm also not qualified to step out and do my own thing when God asks me to do things his way. See, where true rest is found is in submission. Rest is found in submitting to God. Submitting to him in every way. And the more that I submit to my father, the more I find that I fit in with the design for my life and the design for this world that he's placed me in. Right after that story about the demons and the pigs, after they kick him out of the region. I mean, like, I just imagine, like, imagine if, if what God did was God came into our world right now in our tension and he said, all right, there's these problems. Families aren't working well, so I'm going to cast out the demons. But then there was economic ruin in our area and things didn't work. And then we all kind of came to God together and said, God, we get it. That, that you just, you know, got rid of this bad stuff that was happening in our families. But we can't handle the lack of, of resources. So we're, at, we're gathering together right now as a community and asking you, God, to leave southeastern Pennsylvania. Can you imagine the devastation of that statement? And yet in our lives, we unknowingly, oftentimes, ask God when there are difficulties going on in our lives, we say, God, I don't want that. No, leave me alone. And so we ask God to get rid of the difficult circumstance instead of asking God to continue to cleanse me and bring me into a place of full submission. After this moment, what ends up happening is that Jesus gets on a boat with his disciples and they go sailing. And when they go sailing, the huge storm picks up. When I was a kid, uh, my dad's really big into sailing, has been his whole life. He's a waterman. And apparently when I was a baby, they would go out for these uh, day trips sailing, and they'd wrap me up in a, in a life vest and then wrap a towel around me and tape it and throw me under the bow and go sailing for the day. I said I'd sleep all day long. I'm like, how'd that go for you that night? So I was probably wide awake, like, boom, you know. <laughs> it explains a lot about why I like the water so much, I would imagine. But that's what Jesus does in this boat when there's a wild storm that's happening. Storm is raging. The seas are rocking. The boat is actually beginning to be swamped, and they think that they're going down. And these are all watermen who are in the boat. I mean, they know a lot about the boat, and they are flipping out because the circumstances are crazy. But in their boat is the God who, they just, who those other people just asked to leave their region. That God is in their boat, and he's asleep. 
showing them very clearly what a life of rest, a posture of rest looks like. So they wake him. Have you ever been woken when you don't want to be woken? (laughs) So the kids wake up dad, right? Help! Help! What? What's going on? You know, looks around, chaos, peace, be still. I'm going back to bed. By the way, go back to your bed, you of little faith. And this is his interaction. You didn't need to flip out. Why are you waking me up? (laughs) you You didn't need to flip out. I'm here. Remember the one who made those winds and those waves? He's the, ones who, he's the one who made you. Do you not know that you were walking in the presence of God, that all that we're doing is moving with him? Can you not trust that this will be okay? Can you not let it go? You should feel how good it is to sleep on a boat when the waves are going like this. It's great. Rest. 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 Don't worry about it. I know it's your life. I know you think you were about to breathe your last. It's okay. Daddy's here. It's okay. And this is the life of rest that he calls his people to. Some of you right now have experienced a lot of little junk in your life. Budget isn't quite balancing. Those relationships are in tension. Work, just can't seem to get it to be the way you want. You can't get enough time with your kids and at work and the demands are higher. It seems like every time you're getting just to that spot, this thing happens and that's called pilfering. That means when the enemy does a little bit here and a little bit there, a little of this, a little of that, when you're sitting there trying to talk and your kid's going like this, when you're trying to talk to someone, you know, it's that kind of thing in my life when it's like, this should work, but it's not quite working because of all this like annoying things that just keep happening. And I have an idea of how this is supposed to go, but I can't get there because of all this stuff. And that's the pilfering of the enemy. I'm told that's what he loves to do. Steal, kill, destroy. That word steal, pilfer. Nag at us. That's what he likes to do. Distract us. Get us off center. Get us to a place where we can't see. And I would suggest from this text today that what he's actually suggesting to us is he doesn't offer us a rest that keeps us from having annoying things in our life. He's not offering that there's some big card that he gives us that every time a big problem comes in my life, I drop the card and say, that that problem's got to go, or I don't have to deal with this, or every time I'm sick, I'm going to be healed this way. Or It's not simple answers to make my circumstances conform to me. He gives me something much greater than that. He says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I have overcome, and I will give you the ability to overcome. Stand in it with me. Don't ask me to leave your region because things are getting difficult. Invite me to fully cleanse it. When your life gets tough, don't say, God, change the circumstances. And say, God, change me. Change me. Change me. It's not my circumstances that need to change. It's me. Don't just make my life comfortable. Make me in line with you. Bring me to a place of rest. 
Rest is found in submission to the king. I want to live in the kingdom. i got to get in line with the king. The reason I'm having the problems right now is because the other one has access because I'm not rooted in you. So give me the ability to bear in there in the pain. Because in the pain, he develops perseverance, which develops faith. And in faith, I find rest. Amen? Open your Bibles. <laughs> I got a little carried away there. We're going to fly through a few of the things in the text here real quick. You remember what was happening in Hebrews is that the writer of Hebrews is talking to the Jews of the day and saying, all right, Jesus is here. And when Jesus is here, that's the fulfillment of everything you've ever known as a Jew. Your, your religion has been filled up, it's been completed, it's been fulfilled, and that's the heritage back there. But now you have something so much greater, so much greater than the Old Testament, so much greater than what the angels brought to the prophets. You have Jesus. You're the one who's the author of the book, and now he gets in and he really drives it home because he calls out Moses, their big guy, right? Their prophet. And when he gets to Moses, he starts to compare Jesus to Moses, there's not much of a comparison, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Listen, verse 3, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you know what it means to be holy, sanctified or set apart, called out. These words, you are special. God got a hold of you and pulled you out to purify you. He's got a plan. He's got a thing that he's working at with you. And so, so the, the author starts off here by saying, you're holy. You're holy. He's washed you. He's cleansed you. You're his. You're wholly devoted to him. You are his. Okay? And then listen to this. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Do you have a call on your life? As a matter of fact, in Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, it says God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. It means you can't, there's no change to the call. The call's already there. But before we can ever figure out what any call is on any of our individual lives, we have to understand first that we are shareholders in a broad calling that's to the church. And sometimes people get really hung up on trying to figure out what their own unique calling is, but that's not the important thing. The big thing is to figure out what God's call is on his church. That's called the heavenly calling. You have a share in the heavenly calling, singular calling, a big call, his church. God has a call on his people, a holy, set-apart people. He's got a call. And the more we realize that we are a shareholder, you know, you saw that Apple went, uh, is in the Dow Jones now, and it's, it's going to be huge publicly traded stock in the Dow Jones, to, uh, Apple. And, and so because of that, the, the Apple, the iWatch or whatever it is that's coming out, Apple Watch is such a big deal because they want how much money is going to be uh, flowing through this Apple Watch and how much are the shareholders going to get and how much are they going to want You are a shareholder in the kingdom of God. And your stake is your life. And your life fully devoted to Jesus is part of this grander thing called the kingdom of God, the church, one and the same. And this church, God has a heavenly calling for. And you have the privilege, and we each have the privilege of being a part of that. But we are not that on our own. We are that together. And if I try to figure out my life and what it's all about without it being in the inner working of connecting with the people of God, then I will always be lost. Because my first call is together with others. 
Our response when I say, do we have a calling? We should all respond standing up together and say, yes, we together have a calling. And then I have something to offer in that, but we together have the calling of heaven. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, a people following Christ. So here he goes. With that said, consider Jesus. And I love this. I love that he says, consider Jesus. Like, check him out. You should think about it. You should go on a date with this guy. See how it's like. You know, like, read about him. Check it out. It's Jesus. You know, consider him. And then he drops this. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And all of a sudden, he just like went nuclear in the description of Jesus. And every comparison that's about to come with Moses is already paled in comparison because of this. He's the one sent from God to us. Apostle means sent. So I am separated from God and I need God so desperately. I can't be at rest because I'm trying to be God of my own life and I don't have the power of God. Boom! Jesus like a lightning bolt sent from heaven to us. I'm down here, I'm weak, I'm incapable, I'm a sinner, I'm a mess. I need some sort of restitution to be back in fellowship with God. Jesus, taking all of our pain, all of our failure, comes to God as the high priest. Aaron as the high priest, Moses as the apostle, together, still no comparison to Jesus. So here we go. Verse 2 who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Those are uh, inflammatory words. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. It's awesome. Have you ever walked into a building and just looked around and been like, whoa, this place is amazing. So beautiful. Well, it's great, but what are you going to do? Thank the house? No. if If the architect's there, the builder's there. Nice work. You know? And what it's saying is, Moses, he can be a servant in God's house. He can minister to God's house. But Jesus, the designer, the builder, and the son who dwells in it, he built this house, and it is his house. That's what he says. Watch, it says, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And now Moses, who was faithful in all God's house, is a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now here it is, listen. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Look around at the house. Look at how beautiful it is. Guess what? It's you. It's us. We are the habitation of God. We are the kingdom. We are the church. We are the very house, the temple of the living God. That's a privilege. That's a privilege. No, no, no. Come on. That's a privilege. Yeah, come on. That's a privilege. All right, all right. Dang. Work. If indeed we hold fast to our, I want you to hear this. If indeed we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Confidence, boasting, and hope. Is boasting a good thing? Huh? Can boasting be a good thing? Absolutely. Let those who boast, boast in the... Lord. Let those who boast, boast in the Lord. Is confidence a good thing? Can be. Yeah. Same way. Is hope a good thing? Can be. 
Good thing. False hope? Nah, no good. And false confidence? No good. Self-confidence? Eh, what's that mean? God-confidence? It's called faith. That's an identity, knowing who I am in Jesus. Knowing that I am a child of God, redeemed. Knowing that when I boast, I boast over the fact that the God of the universe died on a cross for me. He loves me that much. My hope, it's secure. I will spend eternity with him. And he who began a good work in me is faithfully performing it and will continue to perform it. And he will sanctify me and glorify me in the name of Jesus. He's doing that. That's my hope. And if I hold on to the fact that I am a child of God, I am not my own, I am bought with a price. If I hold on to my confidence, if I hold on to the fact that he is at work in me, if I hold on to the hope of what he is going to continue to do in that moment, when I just lose myself and I am bragging about Jesus, in that moment, there is something available in the church where I am no longer self-promoting. This is not about me. This is not about what I do and what you do. This is about who he is. And when we start thinking in terms of who he is, what becomes available on this playing field together is absolutely amazing because it's not about you and it's not about me. It's all about him. And all of a sudden, we can actually start to function as one and we can be the glory incarnate here of the living God, the house, the dwelling of God's spirit to move among us. I don't care if our theology is right in the sense... Stop, rewind. I didn't mean to say it like that. I do care that our theology is right. But if, if we work at getting right theology, and yet it doesn't become something that we actually trust, where Jesus isn't a person who we trust, then that theology is useless. See, the theology has to lead us to a place where we trust the person. And we trust him about who he says I am, about what he says he has done, and about what he says he's going to do and be doing. When, when that stuff changes the very core in which I, my life is based on, then all of a sudden we're moving. Because my confidence, my hope is in him. I can, I can recite the right words, but it won't mean a thing. I am not living as the house of God just by reciting the right doctrine. When that doctrine reveals a Jesus, and then I trust him, uh, in that moment, we are able to let go of our lives and be the habitation of God, his very house. Okay, so this is what it says. Verse, verse 7 down to 11, just basically what he says is, he's comparing what happened to the Israelites. Is this moment where he says, the Israelites, they had the ability to enter into the rest. God brought them to the promised land, and they rebelled. They didn't listen to God. Every time that they, he tried to bring them into a place of rest, they weren't listening to him. And so then he gives us this warning. He's like, time out. And he gives us a warning in verse 12. And, and we need to hear this as a church. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart. And let's just confess for a moment. There's none of us who haven't had evil and unbelief inside of us. The heart's desperately wicked and deceitful above all else. He says, so take care, because when that comes... It'll lead you, leading you to fall away from the living God. Instead of being dependent on God, I might still be able to talk about God. And I might still even pray to God or try to do stuff for God. But see, when it comes to a relationship with God, I can actually only have a relationship with God when he's actually God, which means it has to be a submissive relationship. 
It means I have to come under God. I can't pretend to have a relationship with God like we're side by side and just buddies, and that's how it rolls, and so I consult God on things. That's not how it works. A relationship with God means I come under God. I'm the child. I'm the one who lays my head on my pillow. I can come to a place of rest because it's on his shoulders, which means I'm in submission to him. He says, be careful lest that undesire, or that, that unbelieving evil, the desires in my heart, pull me away from God. And it says, here's what I want you to do instead. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called, what? I love that. Man, do I love that. As long as it's called today. It's not yesterday. It's not tomorrow. I'm not telling you which day of the year. I'm not telling you which day of the week. I'm not telling you which day of the month. There's only one day you ever have to worry about, and it's always called the same thing. It's called today. And in that day, every day that is called today, it is very important that you encourage your brothers and sisters to pursue Jesus because the deceitfulness of sin is so subtle. And it's, and, and it's that moment where I take a little bit of pride in this thing that I do and my confidence is in something other than Jesus. It's in this moment over here where I get really excited about this one thing that I'm hoping to happen. And if that doesn't happen, then the carpet gets pulled out from under me because my confidence was in the wrong place. And all the time, what he's saying, this isn't about judgment. This isn't about condemnation. There's a place for confrontation. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is we need to stay stoked about Jesus. We need to stay fired up about the fact that he loves us. And it is our job to not just worry about my own life, but say we're in this together. We're a covenant community. We are a body together, which means my job in my Christian life is to come over and say, Carol, man, it is so awesome what Jesus is doing in my life, and I'm sharing that, and Carol's sharing with me what's going on, and then she's like, I'm having a really tough time. Let's pray about it. Jesus has it, you know? And then it comes back around to me, and there's that constant encouragement back and forth to keep us focused toward Jesus every day, every day. And as that happens, it protects us. It protects us from the deceitfulness of sin. In verse 18, he goes back to talking about what happened to Israel, and he says, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter rest, and they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. All right, listen. I gotta get this thing closing up here, but these guys, they got pulled out of, his, or, or out of Egypt. Pharaoh got crippled to his knees by 10 huge plagues. They go across the Red Sea. The, the waters open up of the Great Sea. A firewall gets put behind them. This is for real. And the enemy can't get through the firewall. They get to the other side. Smoke, loud voice, hand writing on stone, giving them tablets. Lightning, bread from heaven, quail coming down to them. Water from rocks. It's all there. What else do you need? Then he says, none of that matters. What matters is I'm bringing you right now to the greatest of all of it. Here's the promised land, the land of milk and honey. Here's the rest that I want to bring to your life. Do you want it? No, we don't want it. Why? Because there's giants in the land and we're scared of them. Really? Because I thought I just crushed Pharaoh and opened up the Red Sea and gave you bread from heaven. No, we're scared. And this is what he says. Listen, chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those 
who listened. Who listened? Two people listened. And we know of in the scripture. When they got to the promised land and they looked in and they saw big giants and they were scared, there was two people who listened. One of them was going to be the next leader of Israel. His name was Joshua. Another was some dude, Caleb. There you go. And these guys, they came in and they said, you should see the size of these grapes. They're like basketballs. <laughs> and everybody else is like, yeah, but there's these giants. And they're like, yep. But there was a Red Sea. You know? We're not talking about what we can do. We don't manage our lives to bring rest to our lives. We don't balance the complexities or cut out the complexities. What we do is trust God. And when he says go, go. And when he says no, no. And when he says stop, stop. When he says wait, wait. When he says rest, rest, rest. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You will find rest for your souls. This requires trust. And it means when he calls us into things that seem too scary, we step in anyway because it's not about whether we can do it. It's about whether he can. It means when he tells us not to do something and we're afraid not to do it because we, we think we won't be happy, we don't do it because we think that he knows about our happiness more than we do. And so in verse 11 it says, Therefore let us make every effort, strive to enter that rest. Doesn't striving and rest seem kind of like, what? And yet this is what he calls us to. One job. One job. It's real simple. One job. I don't have many jobs. Devotion, wholeheartedly given to a singular course of action. If I have one thing I'm supposed to do, make all my effort, make all my, I, I got tons of stuff on my to-do list. I have tons of stuff on my calendar, my budget going all over the place. I got one thing I have to worry about. And it's not first my kids, it's not first my spouse, it's not first anything else. It's first one thing. It's about wholeheartedly given to a singular course of action, which is devotion to Jesus. Jesus. Trust the designer. I can't do it. You can't do it. I don't know about you. I fail all the time. I want to do that. And I'm like, no wonder I don't have rest. Well, that, didn't, that whole message was useless because now at the end of it, after all that, I realized that you just gave me a formula that I can't actually do. I can't trust Jesus that much. So that's the whole problem. And he doesn't end. Listen, listen. Verse 14. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Rest is this, is that Jesus is in charge and Jesus has forgiven every ounce of my sin and he restores me to a relationship. The more I trust him, the more I have rest. When I don't trust him and when I mess up, he gives me a very easy way to return to rest. And it's just simple confession. Confession. I blew it again. <laughs> I thought I could run the universe. I know my universe is only this big, but like, I thought I could actually manage that and I couldn't even manage this part. You know, I confess. And the great high priest of our confession runs to the Father and restores us to the joy of our salvation and brings us back home. 
Rest is not found in balancing our schedule. Rest is found in following Jesus. And when we don't, it's found in confessing that we're not following Jesus and asking for his help and restoring us unto it. Honestly, truly, it's as simple as that. Life is as simple as that. It says, hold on to our original confidence. And our original confidence is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That I need nothing but Christ and him crucified to restore to me the relationship in which I'm designed. That reversal of the curse in the Garden of Eden where all of a sudden work became something brutal. Instead, I can return back to the place where every day, whether I'm with my kids or working or working on that tough relationship or trying to deal with stuff, it doesn't have to be the toil, the sweat of the brow. He can reverse the curse through redemption where he invites me back to the Garden of Eden every day, all day, in the place of rest. See that we make every effort to enter in to the rest that God has for us. Amen? All right. Wait to hang in there. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you. Thank you. There's, a, there's a, an arrogance inside of me, among us, that truly believes that we can think the right things, that thinks that we can do the right things, that thinks that we can balance our life. And it's very similar to the, it's the same kind of arrogance that, that Adam and Eve displayed in the Garden of Eden. And our confession that you are the apostle and the high priest, our confession that you represent, God, is this. We are incapable of functioning from a posture of rest when we are not submitted to you, when we are not dependent on you. When I'm trying to manage my life and when I'm trying to do all the things I need to, instead of releasing like the child and resting in you, instead of sleeping in the boat, while the waves of the storm are all around, instead of continuing to invite you to bring the cleansing and in those difficult moments of my life, I have that tendency, God, to want to push back the difficult things in my life, to not allow things to go the way you want them to go, but, but to try to take control. And, and that's just arrogance, God. And so I, I know for myself, I, I don't want to be there. I want to be at a place where I can trust you and I just, you're the God of the universe. Please be the God of the universe. I don't want to try to carry that weight doesn't work well. I've tried that. And we don't want to do that as a church. We're part of this heavenly calling and you're the one fulfilling it. Give us the ability to rest in you, to love one another, to exhort one another every day, to to push each other toward you. We thank you for this wonderful gospel that speaks a better word to us in the name of Jesus. Amen.